Hi, everyone. Hi, everybody. Thank O'Hara. you so much for tuning in today to Adaptable, Adaptable and the Series Counselor Cafe. I'm especially excited to have with me here today to discuss trauma and men's health and my personal hero, my husband, Pat O'Horo. I will have him introduce himself um, in a moment. Uh, I wanted to just thank you for being part of our viewership. And if you like what we're doing here, please make sure that you subscribe and maybe like or share an episode. It'll help us give you more content that you like and help it come right into your feed for future episodes. So let's just dive in and talk about why I have this awesome man here today. Pat, tell me a little bit about yourself. Introduce the uh, the viewers. Uh, well, uh, my name is Patrick O'Horo. Nice to meet you again after 25 <laughs> years. Um, I am happily married to uh, a woman who I adore. I am a father, father figure uh, to five young men. I'm a recent graduate in clinical mental health counseling and uh, really transitioning from a period of uh, my own trauma work into post-traumatic growth and uh, now a professional career in counseling to help others. Thank you. I have gotten to have a front row seat to the journey that you have taken and uh, I'm warning you, I'm going to be choked up on this episode. I can already feel it coming. Um, you know, I mentioned before that you're my hero and to get to watch the metamorphosis that you have gone through uh, in your own journey has been truly, honestly, the honor of my life. And so um, I want you to tell us a little bit uh, about why you are a good person to talk on the show about men and mental health and overall wellness. Yeah, um, well... I think, uh, you know, to, to start, I had a really atrocious childhood. Uh, I'm the son of a very abusive alcoholic uh, father, and uh, the rest of my family system was kind of congruent with that, right? It's pretty dysfunctional childhood. And um, I, I didn't really have role models. I had to learn to adapt and survive. And really I always had a picture for myself of, of the type of family that I wanted to have, but it was just so distant um, from the life I was actually living. And it wasn't really until I met you that um, I was able to reassess uh, the way in which I was moving through the world and learn uh, about myself, um, develop a, um, a growth mindset as opposed to a survivor's mindset and really my goal was to, to break the cycle, you know, for, for our sons and uh, have them have a better life. And through that journey of personal development and emotional healing, uh, wanting that so bad for other men um, and, and realizing that there's just not a lot of role models that, that teach men how to balance what it's like to be a man in society and the roles and expectations that we have in family and the genders and, and the gender stereotypes. The gender stereotypes, as well as the ability to to have what we all want, which is secure attachment to the people that we love, to embrace our sensitivity and our vulnerability without losing our strength um, and our agency. Right. You I talk about people who are kind of flying blind when it comes to role models of either gender. Mm -hmm. And I say to my clients all the time, you know, you came into this world and you really had no blueprints. Mm -hmm. There, there isn't a rule book about how to move forward and, mm -hmm. and do it correctly. And then when it mm -hmm. comes to emotional and mental health, 
you know, our generation, our parents, that was not something they were yet exposed to. And so what ends up happening is, you know, our generation is like, how do we do this? And, you know, you talked about uh, your stepdad and how you, you kind of got a glimpse of an example of the differences in one from your own dad and him, but also maybe a little bit about the gender stereotype. Yeah, I think, um, you know, as I mentioned, my, my, my father, he was very abusive, but he really embraced this, you know, John Wayne, tough guy kind of persona, right? He was very uncomfortable with any type of weakness or vulnerability and seeing that in me, even as a small child, um, brought up, uh, a power over response, um, which was really bad. And I think like many generations, uh, like every generation, we, we look at our caregivers and we want to do it differently Sure. and we try to, to change it for good or bad. You mentioned to me one time years ago, something about like to give the audience an example of just how overly uh, insensitive or lacking in vulnerability your dad was about stuffed animals. Can you share with the, you know, my, my dad was um, in simple terms, he was a bone breaker. And uh, as a little child, I was always sensitive and what I'm learning now and what I've learned through my journey, right. Is, you know, the original me is actually a very sweet, sensitive young man, but um, my father wouldn't allow me to have things like stuffed animals. I remember my mom had to stay in a hospital um, and, and brought me a stuffed animal and I, I loved it. And, uh, you know, she gave it to me and she said, hide it from your dad. And that was the first time I kind of really realized I was probably maybe nine years old. And, you know, why would I have to hide this thing that, that I care for, you know, from him? Um, and I think that that was also a reflection of myself that I learned that I had to hide who I was in order to stay safe. And the need for connection. You had to yeah. hide that deeply seated human need mm-hmm. for connection mm-hmm. from yourself and others for fear of yeah. retaliation. And, uh, you know, I've always wanted a family, you know, even as a young man, I wanted uh, the family that I didn't have. And so it was really incongruent when I started having children of my own. Right. And wanting to tap into that sensitivity um, and empathy for them and um, kindness and loving kindness with them and not having had the opportunity to practice that. Sure. Because it was more important that um, my my father didn't feel shame for his lack of ability to be vulnerable and sensitive. So circling back to you know, the example of, of Kenny, Kenny. can you share? Yeah. So Kenny was a, um, a man that I had, my mother and I had a very short time in our life. He, he passed away shortly after, um, my mom and him marrying, but, uh, the little bit of time that I did have with him, uh, he was a, just a sweet, sweet, sensitive man. He was just the opposite of macho, uh, when he was around my mother and a really good story, you know, something that always brings a smile to my face is I remember he would be around my mom and if he had to go to the restroom, he'd be like, oh, I have to go tinkle, you know, and he'd kind of pitter patter off and he'd go to the bathroom. But if he was doing a project with me, you know, a teenager, you know, working on a truck or something, he'd be like, oh, I got to go take a piss, you know. <laughs> and for me, like I saw that duality. Right. And I think at the time I I. I conceptualized it as you have to have different personas or faces depending on your audience. Um, But also just like, you know, it wasn't just about manners or etiquette, right? It was really about a man trying to be sensitive, but also really struggling 
to relate to another man and, and not being able to be authentic because he was the tinkle guy. Mm-hmm. He wasn't the take a piss guy. Right. Right. Um, but he shapeshifted to, but he on shape-shifted his to try to, to connect with me. And that was something that really, really stuck with me that I, you know, I'm an observer of people. It's a byproduct of being traumatized. You watch everybody. <laughs> and you get really good. And at I got really, up. and I got really, really good at a young age. Um, and so just noticing that behavior, that mannerism that he had, uh, I think it did influence me in my journey to beginning to find balance. Um, but I think I adapted to it improperly or maladaptively originally, right? I learned to put on different masks. Like that overcompensation. Yeah, and it became really problematic for me as life became more complicated, as my family system grew and became more complicated. And, you know, you switch masks, but when your nervous system goes, you end up back to this original state or this traumatized state that was really incongruent with a lot of the masks that I was wearing, that I was presenting to my family, I was preventing or presenting to society as well. And I want to just chime in a little bit here with that adaptation of surviving. Mm -hmm. For those who haven't watched some of the previous episodes on how we work and the nervous system and our limbic system, you are choiceless. You -hmm. are choiceless in a moment where you might like to behave in a way that would be more congruent with that yeah. original self who's sweet yeah. and tender and nurturing. Yet, because of the adaptations needed to survive your story, you show up in a way that's totally incongruent with that original yeah. self and even the desires that you held from a values perspective. So you talked a little bit about desiring to break the cycle in your own family system. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey and, and your, you know maybe even your fall down moment? Yeah, and I think it really ties into, you know, the the last comment around the nervous system. Um, So for my story, it um, my ACEs score is I say 10 plus. And what I mean by that is is chronic and systemic, uh, just violent physical abuse, neglect, abandonment, just repeated, repeated, repeated. And so at an early age, um, I started to become really dissociative. Um, my benevolent experiences really, when I look at it is one and because I count my imagination, my ability Mm -hmm. to dissociate and to just go into my mind and create a world of safety that didn't actually exist. So for those who don't know what a benevolent experience is, let me just chime in there. Uh, basically that's an experience that one has that helps to create and support resilience. So when somebody has a few people in their world that they can count on or support, Mm -hmm they can then handle the the things that are more traumatizing in nature more adaptively and more in a resilient way. And so we want to look as therapists at not just what happened that was bad, but also what happened that was good. So we can get an understanding about how a, a person is going to tolerate and adapt to mm-hmm. further uh, yeah. upsetting or stressful scenarios. I like to think of benevolent experiences as almost like the first responders that we get for the emotional injuries that we have when we're young, oh, I like right? That. Did you have a friend or a school counselor or a coach, coach yeah. or an activity? Did you have something that you really love to do or, a, you know, and, and what was that that helped me heal? So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's not what happened. It's not what's wrong with you. It's what happened to you. And often trauma is a result of not just what happened to you, but what happened after. Right. So the benevolent or, experiences. Or what didn't happen after. Or what didn't I happen. fell down. I scraped my knee. I was held nurtured 
kissed and touched right. or I was, I fell down, I hurt my knee. And, you know, my dad said, get up to see yeah. and stop crying. Well, those and, are the differences in how we adapt. And if I can expand on that, um, you know, from my experience, when I was around 10 years old, I broke my shoulder playing football with bigger kids. And I came into the house and unfortunately my dad was the only one that was home. His inability to tolerate my distress um, instead of coming to me and being concerned about my injury and caring for me, he beat me until I stopped crying. Yeah. And that really started my journey into dissociation, right? Yeah. Of, of ignoring pain and of ignoring danger and compartmentalizing it yeah. um, to shut that down. And so, and I think I'll, we'll, we'll show the picture of that little boy <laughs> if that's okay yeah. with you. Um, because yeah. it really puts, uh, it really connects, you know, all of us. Yeah. And it was par for the course. I mean, it, it's a, that was a remarkable one um, because of the extent of the original injury. Um, but it was par for the course for my childhood. Um, and then, you know, at some point, uh, you know, we can talk about this later. Um, but, you know, at some point I became the identified um, perpetrator. The problem. The problem in, yeah. in the family system story. And, and that, that caused a lot of other problems. So, you know, as I look at my, my journey, um, into breaking the cycle, right? Was in the nervous system was now having that original sensitive self that wanted uh, to love my children, to wanted to be the the man or the father that I always wanted, and um, really falling falling down a lot um, because I just couldn't fight my nervous system. You know, I, I couldn't fight. Uh, anger. I couldn't fight powerlessness enough. And I saw danger everywhere. And I expanded that bubble of danger expanded to my, my children. And so my ability to show up when they were hurt or they were in danger or they were dysregulated wasn't the nurturing father. It was, it was this alarmed, you know, power, panicked, over. power over father. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I'm not trying to vilify myself. I was doing the best that I could with what I had, um, which continued to be a very dysfunctional, you know, <laughs> cycle. So for, for those that don't know, you know, the, my first three sons um, were for my first marriage, which, which also had uh, a lot of its own problems. And um, so I was, I was just fighting the world and it's really, really hard um, to do that and, um, and move closer to people, right? I, as hard as I was trying, I was moving farther and farther away. I was in the military as well. So there was a lot of expectations around what it is to be in the military and have authority and command. Well, and further solidifying power over control, mm -hmm. you know, uh, things will be this way. There will be no questioning. There will be oh, a certain yeah. order of operations. And so you fell into that culture as yeah. well. And perhaps some of that structure was probably comfortable and nice for the first time in your life to have some structure. And at the same time, mm -hmm. not, not nurturing caregiving yeah. type of leadership all, for sure in our, the military. All of our older sons, you know, eventually grew up to join the military. And I, I imagine that it was quite comforting. It probably <laughs> reminded them a lot of their childhood. Um, for sure. Yeah, um, we had a much more controlling, authoritative parenting approach earlier in our marriage with our kids because 
I was a classroom teacher, so I knew how to manage a whole lot of kids and you were a military guy. And so rather than coming from a much more nurturing Mm -hmm. place, I think we had a much more authoritarian (laughs) and everyone everywhere said, man, your kids are so well behaved. And I thought that's because now like they're, they were all afraid to get in trouble. Like we were just not easy to to deal with. I think you were really good at getting them in line and I was really good in ensuring they stayed in line, you know? And so, you know, it goes back to those roles, right. Of, uh, within a family or within society, these expectations that we have on men creating safety and security and having authority and maintaining order. Um, and how that contrasts with our ability to sit in vulnerability right? To have emotions and to express and share those emotions, right? So my, my children's, I, I, I consider myself a tender father, um, but tender doesn't outweigh angry and aggressive, right? Especially and, when they're moments after moment, after moment, after moment in their nervous system, yeah. it really takes five good to one bad to outweigh it. And it just wasn't in proper balance for them to have been able to absorb all that tenderness. Yeah. So, so as you move toward your family and try to be that caring, nurturing kind of parent, mm-hmm. you know, those other controlling behaviors created a lot of resistance and fear in, in our offspring and and me. And so we, what you want is to move close to us and what we feel is unsafe. So we have to move away, which is it's further increasing shame in you because it's the opposite of what you genuinely desire and want. Yeah. And I think on on that point, I'm sure there's people, you know, I know there's people out there that appear to be blind to those things. Even if I look at my father who appeared to be blind to those things, I think he wasn't. I think there was a part of him that felt a great amount of shame sure. about what he was doing. I don't think you can drink a bottle of gin a day yeah. and and have that not be related to I trying know. to hide the shame. I know. You cannot drink a <laughs> bottle of gin a day uh, and, and cure it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we do see it. We do see where we fall down, even if we can't express it or we don't know what to do about it. Uh, we feel alone in it. Um, thankfully, in my journey, um, I was able to come up for some air to create, uh, to, to decide that I needed, um, to make some changes in my life. And then, you know, along came you and, um, and that helped me to start working towards understanding the attachment injuries that I had and working towards earning secure attachment. But that, you know, it's a story for another day. So, you know, if you can share, because a lot of our viewers have things that they've done that they, that they they can't even face in themselves. Mm. And uh, I call those those fall down moments, those mm. moments where you are so low, you can't help but do any, you, you can't ignore it. The mm. only choice you have is to face it and address it or crawl in a hole and die or turn into a, a heroin addict because you just can't possibly mm-hmm. face. So tell yeah. tell us the story or the stories that related to, you know, your fall down moment and your journey towards aggressive mental health and wellness for yourself? Yeah, I mean, I've I've had many. Um, I think the one where um, I really changed direction um, uh, was was, uh, what we refer to as Raleigh. (laughs) Um, For for context. Yeah, Yeah. please tell the backstory. Yeah, I think we were 10 years into our marriage and... uh, uh, lots of adoptions, lots of complexity, uh, lots of pressure from the inside world and the outside world and things like that. And um, you had gone 
begun your uh, journey into becoming a mental health counselor. And I remember specifically a, a walk we were on in the morning and you shared with me that you'd learned a statistic that people, and not just, you know, people in graduate school, but people that are on their mental health journey. And for becoming many, a counselor, becoming a counselor. Right. right. But for many people, um, that starts when, you know, they go to school and you'd shared that there was really kind of a high divorce rate or separation rate with people. And that it wasn't just because of what they learned and they were educated. It's because they started making a change in the homeostasis of the system, right? Learning about boundaries and codependence and their needs. Well, and if I can share a little bit about part of what I think leads up to, you know, the Raleigh moment is I then go to therapy because the grad school says you should go to three years of therapy before you're a therapist. If you're going to be a conscientious practitioner, you have to clean your own side of the street and take care of business. So I start going to therapy and I didn't know how I was adapting to my environment as a child. And then also in my marriage, I was incredibly codependent. Everything was about what is going to help keep peace. What is going to make sure you don't get upset or the kids don't feel abandoned or alone or, or, or. And so I became an extraordinary egg walker. Mm -hmm. And so in my, or eggshell walker rather, when I went to therapy and I started doing EMDR therapy specifically, I can remember my, my therapist, I, I said, I can't even get my underwear and panties on for the day without worrying, will my husband think it's attractive? And if, if he doesn't, will he leave me? I mean, I was so afraid of mm-hmm. losing you. And he goes, you know, you can wear whatever underwear you want and you can always change your underwear should you want to, you know, become intimate with your husband. And I thought, huh, I never thought about it that oh. way. You know, I mean, in that, or, or, you know, if you're tired, you can go to bed because you don't have to wait up because he likes nights. And I fall asleep on the couch every night and he finds that annoying. And so I'm like, I can go to sleep if I'm tired and I can wear whatever underwear I want, matching my clothing and, you know, line need requirement or whatever I was thinking. But I never even made those decisions without considering what might happen. I mean, I was so deeply codependent. And I remember I started doing things like, I'm going to go to bed. You know, I'm going to go to bed, honey. I'm tired. And I'll never forget the first time you looked at me, you go, what's wrong? And I said, I'm just tired. And you go, well, why would you go to bed without me? Mm -hmm. And, and I'm like, cause I'm tired and I'm so tired of being tired. I really need to get more sleep than I get. And I mean, you already started thinking, oh no, something's wrong. Our marriage is over. She's heading down a path of disconnection from me. Yeah. Yeah. And that was my story, right? right. That was my entire story through childhood and early adulthood was, uh, when are they going to leave me or when are they going to hurt me or when are they going to abandon me? Um, and so, you know, I'm always looking for those indicators. Right. And, and the I, other shoe to drop in your life, you know, and I think that that the, all those changes in me, I was just trying to learn how to put my oxygen mask on because mm-hmm. I never knew how. And that meant for you, here we go again. Well, and for me on that walk, you know, when you mentioned kind of this, you know, arbitrary statistic about, about it. And, you know, now I know it's integrated into our practice, right? Like we tell people when they come into therapy, you're going to make changes and we want to make sure that the family system is aware. Be careful what you wish for. You're going to get it. (laughs) Yeah. And so for me, it was a, it was, Oh no, I better get busy working on this or, you know, I'm, I'm seeing it coming. I'm highly adaptive. So I'm going to get on top of this right away. And I remember the first counselor, you know, I'd had a lot of experiences as a child in the mental health 
system, whether that was inpatient, outpatient counselor. And I have to say, I'm sure everybody was trying their best, but the theme was what's wrong with you. And it was very behavioral based, like, you know, do better and things will be better, right? People will accept you more. And that just created a lot of masks. It created a lot of behaviorism. It wasn't really congruent uh, with my nervous system, right? Mm -hmm. And so I remember the first counselor I went to, I went to her for a very short time. She wasn't an EMDR counselor, but I was, we were just doing history taking and I was telling her, you know, I was smoking a pack of cigarettes a day by the time I was 11. And uh, our youngest son, uh, he was about the same age and she stopped me and she's like, well, you know, stop. what would you do if your son came home and he was smoking a pack of cigarettes today, a, a day? And I was like, oh, that would never happen, right? Like I would have addressed, like, that's, that's so weird. And that was the first time I had any context that it wasn't me, right? Like that. Who, who lets their who child, lets their child, child smoke cigarettes? And I'll never forget the time you told me I just wasn't allowed to steal my dad's and I had to yeah, do it outside. That was, that was the, rule. the rule. And I'm like, you're yeah. 10. I had and to this- buy my own cigarettes. Right. That, and, and there was no conflict. It was like, oh, you smoke, you know, don't take my cigarettes. And, and go outside. I, I, you know, it's like a breakfast club. I literally would get like a carton of cigarettes at Christmas. Right. At, as a young child. I bet those were a Christmas gift. Right. You know what I got for Christmas this year? It was a banner year at the old Bender family, I got a carton of cigarettes. The old man grabbed me and said, hey, smoke up, Johnny. Okay, so go home and cry to your daddy. Don't cry here, okay? And to me, that was just my life. Um, so this was the first time I had context, even though I would never imagine that life for my children. It was the first time I had context that my parents were just not the best parents. It was, it was a bit negligent. Yeah. And, uh, and that really blew my mind and kind of opened up the depths of which I was injured and the type of work I needed to do. And so I sought uh, an EMDR therapist. Um, my first one didn't work out very well. I, um, I think with her, I think she kind of over-identified with this kind of military first responder PTSD approach. And so it was just really accentuating the the things that are outside that I need to adapt to. And it wasn't addressing the complex PTSD I had, which was what was going on inside of me and not my environment. And this was at a time of life where, you know, I was about 40 years old. My father had just passed away which brought up a lot of stuff. He was extremely powerless and I was the only one of the only people to care for him in his last days. So there was a lot, a of, lot of confusion, emotions in that, scenario, yeah, that in time. that and, and responsibility and duty and obligation. And uh, then he left me with a huge mess that, you know, robbed two years of my life at the same time, we're having marital conflict. I was traveling a lot for work. Our oldest son was an airborne combat medic who was deployed to Afghanistan. I couldn't answer the phone. Uh, people knew not to come to our house unattended and ring the doorbell because I would just go into a panic that something was wrong. So my nervous system was just on tilt. I was out of capacity. And I remember he was coming home. And at the time, the army uh, didn't really tell you exactly what day to be there to greet him. You know, they kind of give you a window. And uh, he's coming into uh, North Carolina, which is where my mother and sister live. So we decided to camp out with them the area, yeah. for a week, like literally stay in my family's house for a week while we waited for the phone call to go get him. 
And in hindsight, that was a really bad idea. It brought up, it just exacerbated the problems. And uh, my son arrives, he's on tilt, excited to be home and wants his car, wants his stuff. And and we also, it was like, come, wait, come, wait. So we're like also sleep deprived on top of, (laughs) and nervous because, you know, I'm going to tell a little bit behind this, like a couple of weeks before he had called and told us about a near-death experience yeah, where he, he had almost, he had a buddy of his had stepped on an IED. He'd been blasted himself. And he was blasted. Yeah. And so he can't save the guy. He's the medic. So he's so traumatized. And we just wanted him out of there. Yeah. Right? It was just, so both of us were in total panic over just get him the hell out of there. Was my son home. Right. And um, so I, I remember the day that he came home, <laughs> uh, the plane lands. It was so bad. It's like the, the, the tires on the plane caught on fire, right? Cause it was so hot and, you know, we're waiting for like an extra hour while they cool the tires before they deplane. It was just, you know, on top, it was like this crazy Jenga stack. And then he gets off the plane and we'd had a weekend plan for the family to reunite. And all he wanted to do was get his stuff. And long story short, I ended up sleep deprived up with him for two days. Um, and we finally meet up with the family in Raleigh and, Uh, I remember getting in a fight with you over Q-tips, just Q-tips. And uh, we're just in our normal cycle of just going back and forth, placing blame and escalating. And I'm standing there and you're sitting in a chair and I think you'd had enough. And you came flying up out of the chair in my face. You were being really rageful at that moment. I was awful. I was awful my normal, awful, (laughs) triggered self and something about you coming up and flying at me. I said uh, to you, what are you going to do? Hit me? I mean, I taunted you, honestly. And I did. Um, I remember now um, there's a scene in the movie Anchorman where uh, Ron Burgundy loses his dog and he's in this phone booth and he's just in a panic and he's calling for help. And he's like, I'm locked in this glass box of emotion. And I use that all the time now because I realized that dissociative compartmentalized self uh, at that time that I was locked, that the the true me was locked in this glass box of emotion. And I remember my hand coming up and grabbing you by the face and almost lifting you and panicked inside to stop and powerless to do so. And I thought, remember throwing you at the bed and you bouncing off the bed and then flying towards this glass end table. And, you know, one side effect of my trauma is that I just see things happen before they happen. And I just, in that moment, I, I thought I was watching myself kill you that I, you know, I, I saw you and and you missed that table by an inch and I remember just dropping to my knees. Um, I knew I had uh, I had failed to contain the pressure that I had contained for so long, and I had just lost everything that mattered to me. And uh, I know you were in shock, and I remember leaving the room. We had adjoining rooms with. Uh, with my son who had just returned from Afghanistan and he heard all of this. And I walked into the room also in shock 
And I remember he looked at me and he's like, dad, mom's not the threat. She's just not, she's just not a threat. And, um, you know, the, the one thing I got from the counselor I'd been seeing at the time was this, uh, analogy of this movie battleship, (laughs) not my favorite movie, um, (laughs) for a couple of reasons, but you know, it's, it's this movie about an alien invasion. And one of the reasons I didn't like it is that the USS Missouri, a battleship, uh, is a centerpiece in the movie. And I served on that ship, uh, uh, during the Gulf war, I was a combat vet from that ship. And of course they didn't get it right on the ship. But one (laughs) thing that movie did get right was that the aliens, their threat detection system, they, they weren't just destructive. They had a mission. And when they would see a threat, they would assess the threat and the targets would get highlighted as green, yellow, and red. And if they were red, they would engage them. And if they were yellow, they would watch them. And I remember this one particular scene where, you know, one of the aliens kind of attacks, you know, people and, you know, the people would put the weapons down and it would go from red to yellow. And I was like, that's, that's what's missing in me is once I see red, your sensors are all, I'm done. Mm -hmm. I can't deescalate. And you see red when it's really green. Yeah. Like you don't, you don't actually have a weapon, right? You just, the only weapon that you have is my attachment, my, and my fear of losing that connection. Mm -hmm. Right. And thankfully you had a lot of grace. I think, uh, you know, it's your story to tell, but well, if I can say, I knew in that moment that wasn't you. Yeah, I was like, I don't know where my husband went because, yeah, he loses his shit and he's controlling and he's, you know, whatever. Yeah. But he's not violent. He's never been violent to me. He's not violent to our kids. This was he was just scary, and I never was afraid because yeah. I'd never been hit in my life before, and so I never was afraid of you or really anybody. And so I'm like. Oh, what happened to him? Where did he go? So I knew, I I knew that. And I also had been through weekend one of EMDR training and was starting to become a trauma therapist in my own right. So I knew you were dissociated. You weren't you. And so I had cognitive information and it was incredibly not okay. So both things were true at the same time. Well, and I know where I went. I was in the glass box of emotion, right? right? I was on autopilot. I have this analogy now of, uh, you know, one of the ways that I survived my childhood. And I talked about that kind of dissociation that I had is with violence as a young boy is that, you know, my body is like this fighter jet and it's cockpit with all of this telemetry and signals and information. And it was so horrific. I had to pull the ejection lever and, but I've just been kind of attached to my body with a tether Right. And not in control and trying and wishing um, and uh, not in the cockpit, not in the cockpit, though. And so, you know, my mental health journey has been, you know, learning how to tolerate, you know, and and it's not just a fighter jet. It's a fighter jet that is on fire. Like it's remarkable that it's even flying, that it's still in the air. And so it makes sense to eject. But, you know, my journey has been I got to crawl back in there and learn how to tolerate it and learn how to troubleshoot all of those indicators and get control of the vessel. Right. right? Which and, is your body. Yeah. And, um, and so I think that weekend Raleigh, you know, led to a period of surrender of, uh, you know, decades of me going, I can fix it. I can control it. Mm-hmm. I can manage the behaviors. And well, realizing- and a, I, I would say another thing that happened was a metamorphosis of, because, you know, it's not that I hadn't said, 
it's too much. You're too controlling. You need to let go. Like those things have been said for a decade, but you couldn't see it. And I remember you saying, I see it. You said it to me. I see it. Well, and if I could, I mean, it wasn't that I couldn't see it. It's that I thought that I was the only one that could fix it. Mm. And I didn't see the value or the ability for others to help and to understand it. And I think there's also, there was a lot of blame too, because that's how we discharge our pain and discomfort. And so when things would, would be, go awry, mm-hmm. you know, my experience was, you know, he shouldn't have done this. You shouldn't have done that. Why are you, you know, there was sure. definitely blame there. And so it was like, well, you know, I, I remember thinking like, he can't, he can't see that this response is too big for this scenario. Typically afterwards, right. you would some, sometimes take accountability for those moments, yeah. but, but like in the moments there was no getting through to you. And this mo- that day was that fall down day, you know, you crawling back and laying your head in my lap. I mean, I, I was like, you know, he's, there's no way he doesn't see it now. Well, and, it was, and again, I, I don't think it was that I didn't see it. Mm-hmm. I, I think that I, I knew when I failed to rise, I knew when I let other people down or things got too big, I think I was misguided in that I could overcompensate for those things in other ways. And I also think that because I was, my perspective was, was based on trauma. Sure. That there was a lot of things that I thought were ecologically valid. Right. Well, right? that it, it wasn't just me, that it was the environment. Right. And I think my first, um, you know, EMDR therapist was really kind of, it kind of reinforced that, oh, there's all these ecological things. Of course you're responding mm-hmm. that way. Of course, you know, you're escalating and you're seeing the damage, but we weren't doing the repair and we weren't connecting it to my early childhood like the story. Why. The why. Right. We were really approaching it from like the first responder perspective or, you know, the military, you know, of course you're hurt because the bomb went off, mm-hmm. but we weren't looking at, you know, all of the damage. So I remember we came back our whole trip. It was just, I was like, Priority, urgent and important. Priority number one is is getting to the core of what what's going on with me. Um, mm-hmm. I owed it to you. I, I knew at this point it, it was definitely on me, and there was no ecological reason for me to do what I did. And thank God I'd um, I'd already kind of connected with another provider, and I was able um, to find an EMDR therapist who is a real craftsman. She's, she's very, um, attachment informed and intelligent and studied. And she also understood dissociation, you know, and, and as we began to know each other, we realized that I met the criteria for dissociative identity disorder. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I know that was a whole lot of vulnerability and I hope that you found it helpful. We will be showing you a part two of this episode. So please make sure you catch that uh, because there's so much more to come from this awesome man, Pat O'Horo. And I would like to remind you to make sure to lead with love. It'll never steer you wrong.